everyone, and welcome to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, and along with my co-host, Chris Kay, we discuss and dissect our favorite music, heavy metal. So sit back, relax, pop open a cold one, and let the debate begin. Welcome back to Debating Metal. I'm your host, Kenneth Dean, the Dean of Metal, with my co-host, Chris Kay. Each week, we discuss and dissect the hard rock and heavy metal bands we all know and love. Each week, we also discuss some bands and albums you may not know that you should definitely be listening to, as well as giving you our big four on various bands, albums, musicians, etc. This week on episode 14, we'll be discussing albums that are turning 30 in 2020. It's incredible to think that it's been 30 years since some of these albums came out. Some of the albums are classic, some of them not so classic. For better or worse, we're going to go over the more memorable ones and trigger those memory banks. Later in the episode, you wanted the best, you got the best with this week's Big Four Fantasy lineups. And we've also got another What Should You Be Listening To? But before we begin, let's recap what we discussed last week on episode 13. Last week, we covered cover albums and songs. We spoke about Metallica, the Ronnie James Dio tribute album, and the Black Sabbath tributes Nativity in Black 1 and 2. And we also mentioned how prolific Iron Maiden and Anthrax are at covering songs. If you missed last week's episode or any of the previous ones, be sure to stream or download all our episodes from your favorite podcast platforms like Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, and iHeartRadio. And please don't forget to rate us or leave a review. Chris, what was our big four last week? Last week, we picked our big four cover songs. To check out our list, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and let us know if you liked our picks or think you can do better. Let's start things off this week with what should you be listening to. Why don't you start us off, Kenneth? All right, so this week, I have a very different what should you be listening to than than we've had in the past or probably will have in the future. Due to the coronavirus and everybody having to stay home and musicians not being able to tour, you have a lot of bands and artists that are uh, getting together, quote-unquote, uh, via Zoom and doing songs or you know, literally playing together you know, through this, this um, app. So as I mentioned uh, last week, three out of the four members of SOD, Charlie Bonante, Scott Ian, and Dan Lilker got together via Zoom and they played March of the SOD. So what what I'm getting at with this week's What Should You Be Listening To is I think everyone should be, uh, and everyone probably has uh, an Instagram page or, or some sort of account. They should go on Instagram, follow some of their favorite musicians, and notice if they're doing things like this where they're playing together with the other band members and, and doing songs because it's really cool to see some of these acts you know, getting together in their living rooms in their basements or, you know, whatever, and syncing with each other to play songs. So, um, and SOD being the one, the one that stands out the most in my mind. So I think, uh, to me, that's what we should be listening to. Uh, you know, we should be out there trying to check out these bands, our favorite artists who are playing acoustic guitars. You know, Charlie Benante was playing an electric, or excuse me, electronic drum set you know, so it doesn't, you know, he's not banging out stuff. I mean, right now, Chad Smith from uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Chickenfoot, he is 
playing like a 20 second clip from some of his favorite songs he's just jamming out on his drums some of the the more memorable drum beats plus chickenfoot's also done a song over over instagram so that's something that's pretty cool to check out what do you got chris well tagging on to what you were just talking about um uh, there was, there was a, a, I don't know what the best way to describe it is, but there was kind of like a rash of, of celebrities rash. joining together. <laughs> it's uh, an itch under the pit. <laughs> it's kind of what it felt like. Um, it, so Gal Gadot from Wonder Woman, from, from, you know, the Fast and the Furious, I, I believe she was in, um, uh, did, did a, a celebrity sing along kind of thing, what you're talking about. Where the, she sang "Imagine" and had a bunch of celebrities bring it, uh, you know, join in, right. and uh, kind of took some flack for picking that particular song because you know the, the lyrical content of the song is you know "Imagine No Religion," etc. It's just it kind of fell on deaf ears at this particular time when people are dealing with such you know tragedy and 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 just overall fear, and it was it, it was you know I'll give her credit she was trying to do you know, a nice thing and put something out there or whatever, but it's just, there's some of these you don't want to listen to. And that's probably one of them. I would, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, well, would uh, I would venture to uh, stick to your bands, your metal bands. Don't, don't go after the celebrity versions. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was pretty cool. The SOD one, uh, the chicken foot one, I've seen clips of, but I haven't really paid attention to it. I, I'm totally enjoying Chad Smith jamming out these different drum beats. I mean, the first one I caught was he was he did the intro to uh, War Pigs from Black Sabbath. No, uh, that's cool. You know, yeah. he I yesterday I think it was that he did a really bastardized version of Over the Mountain, the intro by uh, Lee Kerslake. So, uh, okay, you know, it, it was it was just a real quick thing because he only has a single bass drum i don't think he does double bass so that's part of the issue why it sounded a little different but he you know he's just out there if you know chad smith he is a nut and you know (laughs) half half of these videos he's playing with a mask on uh i mean yesterday's over the mountain one he had a uh, one of those dog collars that that prevents you from scratching your ear (laughs) <laughs> he had one of those on so you know he's he's a little bit of a nut so gotta make sure he doesn't get the uh the fleas yeah yeah he's trying to keep his bass player away from him <laughs> <laughs> anyway so what do you have this week for uh what should we be listening to or what should you be listening to all right so mine is actually really new and it's a, a single from a band called insidious disease jesus um, where do you find this so they just put out uh, a song last, actually nine days ago, called Enforcers of the Plague. Now, before that, they had released an album in 2010. So this is the first time since 2010 that they've recorded together. Now, Insidious Disease is a is a, kind of a super group of sorts. Their their members include uh, Silenos from Dimmu Borgir, uh, Gru from Despair. Uh, Cyrus from Suspiria. Miley? No. (laughs) He was also with uh, Dimo Borgir at one point, ICS Vortex. Uh, uh, Shane Embry is the lead singer. They've got a really cool sound that uh, harkens back to the very early days of death metal, uh, but still sounds modern. And it's a really cool track. I would definitely check it out. 
Uh, I'm hoping to hear more from them because I've listened to this thing like 30, 40 times already in just nine days. So check it out, Enforcers of the Plague by Insidious Disease. Cool. I I, uh, I will definitely check that out because uh, you said so. <laughs> That's why. That's a good I, reason. I'm going to check it out. Listen to what I say. Yeah. All right. Well. That leads us to our topic of the week, and it is the albums turning 30 in 2020. So we broke this down into categories, and so we're going to go with each category getting progressively closer to the end of the year. And the, the albums are not... Huh? Spending hours upon hours <laughs> breaking these down, not, not minutes. I know. Well, and, and the funny thing is, is, is that it's not like it's going in any particular order, but it is it, musically. I think it's heading in one particular direction, and then we're going to kind of get out of the year with uh, just a particular topic. Anyway, so we're going to start off with um, what happened to be the music that ended up dying out of this year and that's pop metal pop metal you know slash what's called hair metal nowadays and there was uh several releases that year that were very significant unfortunately for a lot of those bands the significance died very quickly and i and, and personally i'm i'm going to mention these bands albums that were pretty decent in 1990 and then later on their careers kind of tanked a couple of years later, I personally don't feel that it had anything to do with the grunge movement. I really think it had a lot to do with the bands. I don't know if they were discouraged or if they were disheartened or what it was, but their music just did not, you know, live up to either their past or, you know, whatever, you know, successes that they had because, you know, let, let, let's start it off. Okay, Poison. Had a big album, Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood. It's their third album. Okay, it's got a big single with Unskinny Bop. Uh, they have a, 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 another single, another ballad, something to believe in. And you know, this is a big album for them. They do a big tour. They record their live album that comes out the following year. But after that, they have a lineup change. You know, the, the, the continuous infighting finally, you know, reared its ugly head, and they fired CC Deville. And, you know, after that, they put out a string of basically unsuccessful albums. Don Dokken broke up from Dokken and then puts out this album, Up From The Ashes, and it's basically Don Dokken pretending to be his old band Dokken. It doesn't really go anywhere. But, I mean, what you're, what you're saying, and, and just the trend of the two albums is, is the big lineup change from the original or the classic lineup seems to be one of those big aspects of why there's this this shift in 1990. Exactly. Like, you know, and, and again, Poison had a big year. I mean, that was a big year for them with that album. I mean, they were, they were coming off of, uh, you know, Open Up and Say Ah uh, two years earlier. They had a really big tour. I mean, they, they were on a, on a high. They come out with this album. And this album, I, I would say, is not as strong as the previous album. But at the same time, it still had its strong elements. Something to Believe In was a big single for them. I mean, they were all over MTV again. Okay. Cinderella released Heart St- Heartbreak Station. You know, again, it continued into the same, in the same vein as Long Cold Winter. You know, a more blues, you know, it's a blues-based rock album. You know, Shelter Me is the, big, is the big song off that album. 
again, it, it's it's on a downward trend, and I and I'm a lot of these bands are going to sit there and say, well, you know, grunge killed metal, grunge killed pop metal, if you want to call it, you know, grunge killed our what would what, what they call it in L.A. Um, glam metal, you know grunge killed all that and i don't personally think that grunge was the killer so much as they shot themselves in the foot well i i think i think you're right to a degree but you're also wrong in that i think a lot of the, like the the uh studio heads and the people that were creating the trends um saw the the reaction to grunge and often tried to push a lot of these bands to go in a grunge direction and that was kind of their downfall because it wasn't what they did. Right, and I get that. And, that. and I think a lot of the bands that were lesser acts as opposed to established acts suffered that fate. But I'm, I'm just looking at, you know, the first three albums we mentioned, Poison, Don Dockin, Cinderella. Poison, big album. Don Dockin was is suffering from a lineup change. He, he quit or got fired from Dockin, however you want to look at it. Uh, even though it's his own name, I think they actually fired him from the band and just went their separate ways. Yeah. Cinderella, Heartbreak Station, you know, coming off of their big album, Long Cold Winter, this is not a terrible album, but it's not as good as Long Cold Winter. So that has a lot to do with its declining record sales. But even even then, I mean, once they get to their next album, uh, Still Climbing, mm-hmm. it's more blues rock. It's not as pop metal as what it used to be. Right, exactly. And they put out what Hot and Bothered was on that album. Right, that came off of uh the the Wayne's World soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, um, so it, it that was the best song on the album and it suffered from the lack of good songwriting. That's where um Tom Kiefer ended up heading with his with his music because the the two solo albums he's released is very similar to those out those later Cinderella albums and mm-hmm. still not as good, you know, so it, it it's it to me it was a trend of the the changing of the guard if you will okay but these bands also like i said shot themselves in the foot now we we look on down our list a couple of, of, of really good albums that came out extreme uh, extreme two's pornography album that's a huge record it came out in 1990 but why was it a huge record that song more than words was enormous but that was a crossover song that went over that was a pop song i mean i wouldn't even put that as pop metal that was a pop song oh yeah it was just straight pop song you know and Um, then and then they followed that single up with another single wholehearted which was another pop single you know it's by a rock band yeah i mean they did just they did do that song get the funk out on that album but again the album was so much more accessible than than most pop metal albums um so it was a big album for them warrant comes around and releases Cherry Pie, their sophomore record, and they went out of their way to prove that they can hit, they could write a hit single in five minutes, because they said, you know, they said, no, you know, the, the record comes like, hey, we need a single, we don't, we don't hear a single on this. So he goes, all right, and they gave him Cherry Pie, you know, and it was ridiculous because it was a huge hit for them, and they hated the song because they didn't want to do it, <laughs> you know, but it becomes this enormous song for them. Janie Lane finds his wife in the video. <laughs> and for what it's worth, the album had some good songs on it. Uncle Tom's Cabin is my favorite Warrant song. Now, I'm not a huge Warrant fan. I only really listen to the first two records, if at all. But that song, Uncle Tom's Cabin, is awesome. I mean, I love the, the acoustic intro, but it that song rips. you know. And then they had that song, I Saw Red, which was a big single for them. It was, a, a, of course, the, 
the a power ballad, and that's the that's also another linking attribute to all these albums: Poison, Cinderella, Extreme, Warrant. We're going to talk about Scorpions. We're going to talk about Queensrÿche and Firehouse. All these bands, all these pop metal bands, the the one similarity between all of them was they had big big power ballads on every single one of these albums. Yeah, I mean power ballads were definitely the uh the adjoining factor to all these albums. It was a big push, you know, get put a ballad out, which also kind of is a, a downfall of metal at the time because that's not what metal's really known for. Exactly. I, I mean and and they were they were trying to to kind of still live in that 80s mentality when things were starting to shift. And right, so exactly. you saw that that's why like all the albums that followed this had such a polar shift. They they all went in a different direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you think about okay, so we just talked about Warrant. So on our list is all the Scorpions, Crazy World. You know, they had two big hits, both of them power ballads, Winds of Change and Send Me an Angel. Which Winds of Change is like the perfect description of this whole era yes i mean it was a great song don't get me wrong it was a song written about the uh, the fall of berlin the wall that divided you know uh east germany from west germany you know it came out three years later because that's when they were still on tour from previous records and stuff like that i mean it's a great song don't get me wrong all these songs that are that are big hits. I mean, something to believe in from Poison was it was a great song. The title track "Heartbreak Station" wasn't a huge hit, but it was a pretty good song. Warrants, you know, I saw red, you know, more than words from Extreme. All those songs were huge, but it was it was a shift. It was a you know the winds of change were upon us for sure. And coincidentally, Cinderella on that same album "Heartbreak Station" had a song called "Winds of Change." just wasn't as good as the scorpions version. Uh, scorpions version um, <laughs> uh, well one thing about scorpions album that definitely was a change uh going forward was th- this was the last of the uh the um love drive era that this was the last album that they put out because francis buchholz was kicked out of the band for you know whatever whatever uh monetary reasons there were there was a, there's a story there where i guess he was taking some some of the funds for the band under the table and not really acknowledging it to anyone else and so they kicked him from the band and have never patched up that relationship since it's uh, funny how things like that work yeah you know uh, but I mean, francis but francis didn't he play with someone recently that was associated with the Scorpions, was it? Did he play with? Um, I think he played, he's played with Michael Shanker. Michael, <clears throat> that's it. He played with Michael Shanker. Okay. Yeah, it, the album to me has a little bit heavier sound. Um, it still it still sounds like Scorpions up until that point, but you can see something is changing. You can, or he, rather, hear something's changing. Herman Rarebell wasn't around for too much longer. Right. So and, and, that, and oddly and enough, was, being a drummer, he's he's very big in uh, in inputting some of the the music. But he wrote it. he wrote a lot of the lyrics in the early a or early era of the band because Klaus Meine didn't know English. Right. 
So he he uh, was a big aspect of that, but th- he he took less and less responsibility as time went on. And after this, I mean, I think there was one more album with Herman, and then he was gone. And then you had, I mean, that's that's just such a big factor to leave to lose, and then the band changed directions entirely. Exactly. I mean, and, and Scorpions, I mean, they, they they continue to be around to this day, but they have nowhere near the. Uh, the popularity that they had, or at least in the United States, that they had during this period. Now, one of my favorite bands, as we've talked about several times, Queensryche released their enormous album, Empire, this year in 1990. And, of course, that was a big hit uh, with Silent Lucidity, was the, was the main single off that. Um, I mean, they had some other hits, Jet City Woman, Thin Line, and Empire was a big a big hit single for them as well, but nothing top Silent Lucidity. Again, a power ballad. And this is from a band that didn't do power ballads. It just so happened to, yeah, to fall into place. That whole album feels slower. It's less metal to me. Yeah. Listening to it. It's very like, um, it stays kind of in the middle range where it just... It never has a lot of energy. It never loses a lot of energy. It just kind of middles all the way through the album. And the perfect song to describe that is um, Jet City Woman. Jet City Woman has a riff in it that if that riff would have been anywhere else in the song, I mean, it, 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 it's almost like a main riff. It's the, the, the riff right before the uh, the chorus, I think. is. Uh, I can't remember how it goes, but... It, it's it's such a cool riff, and then it just played only for like three seconds. I was like, man, they should have expanded on this, but I guess that's just the way Queensryche is, and they've, they've been that way where, you know, and that a lot of had to do with, with Jeff Tate eventually pushing the band in a certain direction. I was just reading an interview recently that uh, Michael Wilton said that he thinks the most underrated album in Queensryche's uh, catalog is... Promised Land, which is the album that came out after Empire. And okay. they didn't want to put out, and, it, and mind you, it came out four years later. It came out in 1994. They didn't want to put out Empire 2, but they went, you know, Jeff Tate being who he was and is, pushed the band in a different direction, and it went a little bit slower, even slower than Empire. And not slow in terms of all ballads and stuff like that, but just the songs were more methodical and plotting. They do have some good songs on there, but at the same time, they're just not these hooky rock songs like they had on on uh, Operation Mind Crime or or The Warning or even Rage for Empire. I uh, range Rage, <laughs> rage for me, order. Rage for order. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a pretty pretty distinct difference between Operation Mind Crime and Empire. Empire's just kind of slow, right? And Operation Mindcrime was still kind of a, I would describe it more as progressive metal, whereas as Empire, I, I, I it didn't feel as progressive to me. It did have elements of, of progressive metal where it, where it had like kind of digital sounding effects. In some it, songs I, it did. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's the best way to describe it. And there was, there was this kind of like a background noise between songs that uh, kind of gave it a interesting. I guess it was like a a city feel, right? Uh, right. I don't know the best way to describe that, but it to me it just it just felt 
like it just stuck right in the middle of the range and it just it wasn't very exciting no and empire was a pretty good album don't get don't get me wrong or, or, or yourself wrong but it, it you know coming off of operation mind crime it was uh, disappointing to see it in some aspects obviously in other aspects it was huge for them you know empire itself wasn't a bad song i mean they still play that song today in concert but that song probably is the best song on the album and but i think there's something to be said for the difference between the way a fan reacts and the way like a, a casual person reacts because it probably had a huge crossover appeal to a lot of people with the the tracks that were released as singles like silent lucidities like you said was a huge hit for them but it appealed to more than just Queensryche fans or metal fans in general it appealed to a lot of people so to the average metal fan or the person that's following them throughout their career which i wasn't obviously going from album to album from beginning to that point which is what i kind of like to do with with bands go back in history and start at the beginning and follow the progression um you can hear this is kind of a departure and i imagine it it probably pleased most fans but there were probably a few that were like this isn't the direction that i thought the band was going to go and you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, the the, the casual listener is going to like that album a lot more than say, the Queensrÿche fans because Queensrÿche fans were expecting something different, and they got Empire, which well, was back, a more accessible then, album. Sorry, and, and back then people would pick up whole albums based on one single, whereas yeah. now it's a different approach. You can buy just the one song you like on iTunes or or whatever platform is coming next for Apple, because I know they're discontinuing iTunes. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a different aspect of things now versus then. But despite that, it, it, it simply is that this was a much more crossover appeal era mainstream. for a lot of these yeah, bands. More, more mainstream. Yeah, more mainstream. The, I would say the overall albums often stuck to their guns, what they were, were doing, but they had something on each one of these guys' albums that appealed to the masses to get the you know the, the outside listener in right. on it as well. And now, in, in exactly what you're saying leads into the next band that's on this list is Striper. They released the album Against the Law. Now, when you're talking about trying to be accessible and you're talking about trying to, to, to appeal to a different audience so you can gain a bigger audience, this album, the, the band dropped their gimmick yellow and black look. And they went for a more mainstream leather look that a lot of these other bands were, were already, you know, had already adopted years ago. So they're, they're basically trying to look like all the rest of the bands. The To me, the one thing, and I guess for striper or all these bands it's not it's not the way they looked to me i could care less what they look like i could care less how big their hair was the songs had to be good and that's what failed for striper on this against the law album the album sucked it did not have any music on it that would appeal to the masses whatsoever and and even even in general metal it just was generic generic as generic can be and that's why the album fails. So, you, so you, you couple that with the fact that they change their outfits. So they're changing the way they look so that they can try and be more mainstream, more appealing to the, to the masses. And then they put out music that just failed. <laughs> it was an epic <laughs> fail on their part. And unfortunately, I mean, 
they got back to the yellow and black years later, but I mean, it, it was it was a pretty bad time period for them because they just you know be, with everything happening, they should have stuck with the power ballot thing because they had better success with that. They could have had another power ballot. They probably would have been huge in 1990 if they would have had another power ballot on the album, but they didn't. So it's almost like Kiss dropping their makeup, their whole persona changed. Exactly. Very similar. Okay. And it, I mean, see, I don't know much about Striper. Um, right. And, and I'm not a huge Striper guy, but I do know a little bit about them enough to be able to talk intelligently. I mean, they were, they're a Christian metal band. They sang songs and referenced Christ and referenced God and referenced Jesus and all these things and talking about the Bible and talking about, you know, being a good person and, and being soldiers to, to, to God. I get that. And that's, that was their shtick. And you know what, for what it was worth, they, they sang about love at the same time and it worked for them but you know for whatever reason the record company decides hey you know we really need you to to kill this yellow and black thing because it's not working anymore and and be more like the rest of them so they all dress up in leather but then uh, you know i don't know if, if taking off the it's like taking off the, the superman cape also now you suck you don't know how to to fly you know so they their songwriting just was just did not work and i like striper i the, the last two three albums that they've released in in the two in the 2010s are very good albums so it, it's not like i don't like them well this this goes back to an earlier point where um it seems like th- them changing their gimmick basically uh hmm. to use wrestling terms i guess um Striper changed their logo. They changed their approach. They their look. Mm-hmm. They no longer have the Isaiah fifty three five. I think I'm saying that right. Right. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah Isaiah um, fifty three five. That's that's it. Goes back to what we were saying with some of the other bands, like the, them changing members, changing you know what makes them them, is not going to produce a good album. Right, exactly. You know, they're being they're being they're being um pushed in a corner and that's not really the best way to to address, you know, putting out music that you love. The 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 term that that's really that really hits home with these things is that they weren't being true to themselves. A lot of these bands, I mean Poison was they 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 just were themselves. All these bands in in, in essence were being true to themselves, maybe not so much Queensryche. But Striper wasn't, but but it, it became something later on because this was again like we mentioned at the beginning, this was the the change, the winds of change, things were changing in the background, you know, in, with other bands, musically, you know, the, the landscape was changing. These were the last of the successful ones coming out, basically having that crossover appeal and still being a pop metal band. Now the last one on this on this list for pop metal bands and and one for some reason they're still around today. <laughs> this is band Firehouse. They had a huge hit with the song "Love of a Lifetime." It is is like everybody who got married in in the 1990s and even today in some cases the older people who get married today. This is like one of their either their wedding song or it's featured in the wedding somewhere. This is that kind of song. <laughs> I mean, I, see, I don't even know this band. I 
I mean, I don't know a lot about them. I just escaped my radar. Yeah, I, I, I know. I mean, they've released they've released two albums back to back. I think it was ninety ninety one or ninety ninety two. They were big for them, but they contained ballads that brought them to the forefront. I mean, that's all they were. That's all they were good for, really. The rest of it was generic rock, but because they had that one big power ballad that that the record company could push, all of a sudden everybody loved them. Oh man, what a great album cover! <laughs> with that little fire with the chick on the front. <laughs> yeah, there's like a really badly photoshopped, not even photoshopped, like a cutout lady on the front, uh-huh. and there's a there's a field with the house badly on fire, like the the effect, the perspective so bizarre. It, <laughs> it looks like something you would throw together as the uh, test image. You know, this is the idea we want to present. Right, right. And then they went with it. So, so, so like Iron Maiden's Dance of Death, it's a test image. Yeah, the the second album's actually got a better album cover. Yeah, so that, I mean, they had a real big hit with that, you know, Love of a Lifetime. And that's as far as we're going to go with Firehouse. And mentioning Iron Maiden, they, along with several of, several of the other bands of, of their era, and I'm going to include... Judas Priest and Black Sabbath in that mix only because they were still around. I don't want to even say relevant. They were still around at that time. <laughs> um, Bruce Dickinson, Dio Band, yeah, I mean, uh, Black Dio, Sabbath, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. Right. Yeah, and we're we're kind of including King Diamond in this as well. Right. So this you know, the 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 metal bands that had already been established from the seventies and the eighties. They were basically suffering. I don't even want to call it an identity crisis, because I think it was fatigue. I think it, it was just that may have fatigue. been it. They've been around for a long time. They've been doing the same thing for a long time, going in one direction and then saying, "Hey, maybe, maybe we need to shift directions. Maybe we need to try something different." I mean, Bruce puts out his first solo album while still in Iron Maiden. Right. I mean, and I think that had a lot to do with you know. I guess his frustration with the band and, and, and doing stuff. And he was being approached by a lot of different things. It just, you know, he had so much on his plate because he was doing the fencing and he was trying to become a pilot and, and all these different things. And so he had so much going on in his life and he had, he needed an outlet. Fine. That's okay. Tattooed Millionaire, not a bad album. You know, it's not Iron Maiden, which is great. You don't want it to be Iron Maiden. That's the one thing I, I I kind of enjoy when when these bands or, or artists do solo albums, is they're not doing the same thing that they were doing in the other album on in their regular at least band. at least a lot of artists are sometimes they sound exactly the same. No, You're like why did they even do this? Exactly, and that, that's what I don't like. For instance, Blackie Lawless when you know he was trying to do the Crimson Idol as a solo band, but it sounds like Wasp, and and it's usually when a, when a lead singer. Is is the guy who does the solo album? They tend to be very similar, especially if they're the main cog of the band. Now, Bruce is not necessarily "quote unquote" the main cog. This is Steve Harris. Iron Maiden is Steve Harris's band, so everything centers around him. So Bruce had yeah, but it'd be really easy for it to sound the same with the same singer. I mean, it'd be easy for that to happen, but. Tattooed Millionaire doesn't sound like an Iron Maiden album to right, me. Right, it doesn't. And even even his version of Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter sounds different than the than the Iron Maiden version because of yeah, course Yeah, it came first. Right. Steve Steve's Steve Harris adding his 
dimension, his bass playing to that makes it sound so different. And which, mm-hmm. in turn, because of the way Steve plays, that kind of changes the way Nico has to play drums. So it doesn't sound straightforward like it does on the on the uh, on the Bruce version, and that yeah. that's what makes it good. But Bruce puts out Tattooed Millionaire in 1990, but Iron Maiden puts out No Prayer for the Dying. Okay, and for Iron Maiden, that was that was definitely a fatigue thing, in my opinion, because they had been coming off the straight touring that they had done from basically 1980 on. And so 10 years later, they had come up with a sound. They started it with Somewhere in Time and then Seventh Son of Seventh Son. They have this electronic keyboard guitar sound that is, is prevalent on the album. And now Steve Harris builds his barnyard studios and he puts a mobile studio in there and they say, all right, let's record here. And it's, it's about as raw sounding as the first Iron Maiden album, almost. Yeah, and, and it, it's a different direction. It's not, it's not synth rocky anymore. It's, right. It's more traditional rock album, which I think was what was kind of the catalyst of Adrian Smith leaving. Correct. Was he? He didn't like the direction that they were going in uh, because they had they had built up, built up, built up, and then here, let's go in a completely different direction. And, and and I wouldn't even say it's a it's a completely dif- different direction so much as the sound was not progressing. It w- it went backwards, and and I get Adrian's point of view on it, but a lot, I think also what was frustrating Adrian was he wanted more of an input in terms of vocals, he wanted more of an input in terms of his songwriting, and I don't know if if it was, I mean he's always had a good input in songwriting. I just don't know if they were taking his certain ideas that he had and and, and turning it down. So he he just well, they decided. kept some of his songs on the album. There were I think he had two songwriting credits on that album. I think that's why I think it was just one. Uh, the last okay. when I checked, but yeah, it's just one of those things where, you know, I guess they got tired with, with each other, and he went his separate ways and did his own thing. And he's a little bit more. It's funny for as for as aggressive and and good of a riff writer he is. But when it comes to his melodies, when he did stuff solo-wise, his his vocal melodies were a lot lighter. And so I guess that may have been part of the catalyst as to why he decided to leave. And Steve said, sure, go ahead. Do what you got to do. Well, if I remember correctly, he also did um, his solo album the year before. Oh, Is ASAP? Right? Yeah, I think it was ASAP. Yeah. yeah. And I can, I can imagine when you have that much freedom... You know, you're doing what you want to do, and then you go into the studio, and it's not going the direction that you feel like it should. It's probably more of an easy jump to to say, maybe this isn't right for me anymore. Right, exactly. But we all know where that ended up because, you know, 10 years later, he comes back. A few years later, Bruce leaves, and then he ends up coming back. They come back together. So it, it, it worked out in the end for Iron Maiden. Judas Priest, Painkiller. Uh, comes out in 1990. Now, oh, oh man, I love this album. <clears throat> your your favorite Priest album, okay? In my opinion, Return to Form. But I don't even know if it was Return to Form. Is they got so much that that album was so much more aggressive. It was it was it's not a Return to Form. It's it's so much heavier than anything they released before. And of course, the biggest catalyst to that is they have a heavy drummer in Scott Travis. Right. You know, they'd come off of two albums, which were kind of more experimental. There's supposed to be one big double album with, uh, Ram it down and, and, uh, turbo. And 
that was just yeah, – I think Turbo was a huge turnoff for a lot of the fans. It was so uh, electronic sounding. It wasn't the direction that they saw the band going. It's just not super metal. I mean, for the for the for the band that's touting the metal god Rob Halford, you know that's it's not really a strong metal album. And then you have then you have Ram It Down, and it's got Johnny Be Good, which whether you like it or not, most fans don't like that Johnny Be Good version. Um, it's just not a it's not a metal song. <laughs> no, they 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 metalized it, but it's just not. I, I get what you're yeah. saying. I don't have a problem with the song as a whole but i get where the fans could be a little put off by it for sure okay so if, if it was released as a b-side single then it would be okay this is kind of cool but to stick it right in the middle of an album with where the the first track is ram it down it's pretty heavy it's it's kind of a cool song and then and then you 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 get into the middle and it's like johnny be good you know it just doesn't it doesn't flow in the album so so then you get to Painkiller, and Painkiller is one cohesive effort. It's heavy. It smacks you right in the face from that first drum beat. And then afterwards, Rob Halford leaves the band, and you go into the the uh, Ripper years. It's it's quite interesting. I mean, I understand why Rob left, okay? Uh, he feel he needed an, a, a different outlet. I get that. I don't know. Maybe it was the band wanting to continue and move forward. He wanted to do something different because he comes out with Fight, which in in essence, I would almost say is is uh, for the song Painkiller, it's like a, a an extension of the song Painkiller because the, st- the stuff on Fight's first album, War of Words, is so, for Rob at the time, was so extreme. Yet, yeah, but the, this, the, the middle of the content album is, is different on Fight than on Judas Judas Priest. The what content? For sure, the lyrical the lyrical content. Right, but but who's who's writing the lyrics? Rob Halford. Yeah. So I mean, it's not like he couldn't turn to the band and say, "Hey, this is what I want to put on the album." You know, so well, it, I mean, but but a band effort is still a band effort, and Judas Priest was known for writing these songs about these, you know, characters. These these journeys you would go across and fight was just so much straightforward, more straightforward, and it was it, like there was a there was a no plot lines, there was no major stories to be told. It was just rockers, every yeah. song. I mean, it, that's one of my favorite albums of all time. That fight album, that was incredible. That's great. Yeah. So, <clears throat> uh, you know, painkiller comes out. I mean, that's an excellent. Album. Like you said, you know, cohesive from beginning to end. Not so cohesive, and I'm going to put this. I'm going to put these two bands together: Dio and Black Sabbath. Lock up the wolves was. It's just something that, from Dio. I mean, I, I put it this way: he has his third guitarist on his uh, in, in his third in, in three albums. You know, three albums ago he has Vivian Campbell, and then the, then the next album he's got Craig Goldie, and Craig then, Goldie, yeah. and then this album he's got Rowan Robertson. So, you know, there's obviously uh, something wrong in, in the camp. And then well, from, from the, the, the previous album, he goes to, you know, Vinnie Apice and Jimmy Bain leave. So now he's got a whole new band for Lock Up the Wolves. I wouldn't say something was necessarily wrong in the camp. Craig Goldie just really wanted to do a solo effort. He really didn't want to continue being in somebody else's band. He didn't really have a bad relationship with Dio. It just needed something different. 
So this 18-year-old kid, uh, Rowan Robertson, comes in, and he's a pretty phenomenal guitarist. Brings in a different perspective, but then it's just so different from what they were doing before that at that point, Jimmy Bain and Finney Epsi leave. They bring in Simon Wright from ACDC, and uh, I forget who else is on the album, but it's it's a pretty different sound and and you can tell from even the music videos it's it's more like there's a skateboarder in the music video and the of the uh was the first song on that album um it has been a long time since i listened to that one i listened to it this morning there's a couple songs Uh, wild yeah right and and okay so wild one i i listened to it this morning it's not a terrible song but what i what i've noticed was the main verse just keeps going on and on and on and doesn't really the song doesn't really go anywhere i mean mm-hmm. i i must have had it on for two minutes and and i'm like i still don't hear a chorus you know and well, it's a decidedly younger sounding album because you have the perspective of the, one of the main songwriters on the album is is an 18 year old kid True. So it, you know it what? just feels so different. Yeah, it, it did. So, I, I, you know, like I was expecting this, you know, very similar to uh, We Rock or Stand Up and Shout, something that catches your attention as a first song on the album. And mm-hmm. the, the riff does that. It's, you know, you, you get into the riff, but the, as a song progresses, it just really doesn't go anywhere. And that's how the yeah. rest of the album plays out. You know, and that's why Dio became essentially non-existent in the 90s. I mean, he put out albums. Well, the other part of that was he rejoined Black Sabbath for Dehumanizer that not long after that. And, well, then it, and then I think it was four four years after that, or two year, two to four years after that somewhere. Um, and then he puts out Strange Highways. Right. And, and Strange Highways is much heavier. You, you, no, you're exactly right. The thing, the thing about it is, is that because Lock Up the Wolves kind of went nowhere, you know, they gave him the opportunity to sit there and say, okay, you know what? this is not really happening right now. The opportunity to rejoin Sabbath shows up. So he's like, he jumps on it, you know, and, mm-hmm. put, and puts Dio on hold. Um, and then the same problems that had surfaced in 1980 surfaced again, you know, and he decided I'm going to go back to Dio. So yeah. I guess, I guess because he was in black Sabbath and the heaviness, he, he that kind of led itself to, to strange highways. Yeah. I mean, it, one thing leads to another, but the whole thing is, is that, Dio's 90s years wasn't his best. Yeah, the the 80s <clears throat> song or the 80s vibe that Dio had was gone at that point. Right. I mean, it, they they went in a different direction, heavier. Uh, Jeff Pilson was in the band. Angry Machines, I wasn't a big fan of that followed that. You, then you got Magica, which I wasn't also a big fan. Like, there was a lot of those those albums in that time period that... Yeah, just like what you're saying, they just weren't they weren't the strongest, you know, of right. what he put out and what most memorable. Exactly. Now, mentioning Black Sabbath and all this, um, they come out with the album Tear. Now, there's not a lot to say about Tear. It's not a good album. And at that point it sounds like a band that is just hanging on for way too long. They they should have really ended it when they could have ended it but they didn't. Well, I mean, the the album that came out before that was pretty well received, which was Headless Cross. Headless Cross was uh, a pretty, I would say overall, pretty cohesive album, a pretty good album, uh, even with 
the Tony Martin vocals on it. Because I'm not a big fan of Tony Martin. I know there are a lot of Black Sabbath fans out there that are. Obviously not the majority of the, the fan base, but <laughs> there's still a lot that are. You, you'd come off of all this this constant change. You had the D.O. years, which were pretty consistent, but short. You have Born Again with Ian Gillen. You have Seventh Star, which is not even really technically supposed to be a Black Sabbath album. Then you have Eternal Idol, which has a, you know, who was the guy who sang first on it? Ray Gillen. Mm-hmm. So you have Ray Gillen, and then um, Tony Martin comes in and redoes the lyrics. You have Headless Cross, which is the first amount of consistency from album to album between those two and then you come to tear which also has you know that, that same consistency but at the time they they're still talking to dio they're they're still this idea of they need to bring the band back together from the dio years so there's this pressure especially in 1990 because they're they're reaching not long from that than the reunion uh, or what would be the ten-year reunion of of that era of the band? Right. So, so there was just so much pressure at the time that I think they just put out a, a lackluster album, which is all about Norse mythology and it's kind of yeah. Odd. And and the the whole thing about behind Norse mythology was um, you know with Headless Cross they Tony Martin comes into the band and he thinks that you know. Black Sabbath is all about Satan and the devil and all this bad stuff and 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 evil stuff and he makes this album or this, he writes these lyrics for this album that are all about that and mm-hmm. and Tony turns around and says hey, dude you might want to back off on that a little bit so he instead of even even though it was their best hit from you know for so many years he he doesn't want to do that <laughs> <laughs> exactly and it's so so he turns around and says hey you know back off and make it more implied so much as more direct and in your face so that's when mm-hmm. you know he came up with the Norse mythology which even to this day you know tony's like i i, I said one thing and he did this you know type of thing and you know it, it went where it, where <laughs> it went so but the other big thing about that album is cozy pal and i listened to the album uh, or a few sh- cuts of it this morning there's almost a um a Lars Ulrich feel to that production and when I say that is because man those that snare drum is so in your face on that album and in the production is very 80s sounding to some degree but it's like take an 80s sounding band and then you know how they have a, a nice sounding snare drum and just put that you know three or four or maybe even five dbs up on the <laughs> on the mixing and it's just so in your face, and and it's what I read this morning was that some people, you know, really it was very split down the middle. Some people really like it, some people really can't stand it. I'm part of the. This was a little too much in terms of drums in your face, and a lot that had to do with Cozy Powell and Tony producing, you know, self-producing the album as opposed to having a real producer. Well, if if you know anything about Cozy, I mean, he he pounded away on those drums. Oh yeah, and then that he. He just he he was a an oddity in the drumming world, and it was it's you know tragedy that he died so young. But uh, but yeah, I I I've always agreed. I mean, I I went through a whole period where I was just absolutely obsessed with Black Sabbath, and I picked up every album that they had. I mean, I I had every single one of their albums. Had to track down Tear on eBay because it was out of print by the time I got my hands on it. 
it wasn't one that ever stuck with me. I mean, I like stuff off of I love I like Headless Cross. I like stuff off of Eternal Idol. I like Dehumanizer. Uh, Cross Purposes has one or two songs I can get behind. But did you say Forbidden never- was one of your favorites? <laughs> no, <laughs> I despise Forbidden. That's um, horrible. That's when they went to IRS Records, if I'm not mistaken. They changed I record that, companies. I think that was because they had to pay the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they uh, they got dropped. So yeah, I mean, uh, t- these bands are kind of clinging to this time period or, or what they were doing before, but but at the same time, they're reaching kind of the end of their rope before some big big huge change happens. I mean, Bruce is not long for Iron Maiden. Uh, Rob Halford's not long for Judas Priest. Bruce obviously releases his solo album and Dio's not Dio's not career. long for for Dio <laughs> at that point either. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's leaving for Black Sabbath. Black right. Sabbath is changing, you know, singers from Tony Martin back to Dio. The only one that's consistent and sticking with what he's doing is King Diamond. Well, that's because he's King Diamond. But even then, he puts out a different variation of what he's doing. Instead of having, you know, the the, the album from the 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 uh, point of view from the protagonist, you're having a narrator point of view. Right, and, and it's and still that, a pretty popular album. It's still a very good album. Right. Yeah. I mean, King Diamond. He's always been pretty consistent. I, I gotta give him that much. But a lot of it has to do with because one. He's he's relatively independent. He's on a minor label. I mean, nobody on Roadrunner is going to be pushing for for their artists to sound like you know some sort of pop metal artist. That's for sure. So yeah, he had that benefit. Um, the other benefit was that he was the the guy in charge. I mean, if you didn't like it, he was going to fire you. And so he had <laughs> yeah. he had guys in his band that were basically on board. So I get but that. that. Said, huh? This was the last one in a string that told like a consistent story all the way through the album. The next album, oh, shoot, the Spider. Yeah, what was the, it called? Spider's Lullaby. Okay, yeah, Spider's Lullaby is the first one he does that just it's some of it's linked together, but but the majority of them are individual songs. Right. I mean, in, in King Diamond had a, a relatively consistent time through the '90s. I mean, between King Diamond and, and rejoining Merciful Fate, he had a, he had a good '90s. Um, we can't take that away from him. So that's worked out for him pretty well. Yeah, the one thing is we could tell with the changing of guard, with all these bands getting ready to ba- ma- basically make major uh, lineup changes, the one scene that that seems to be getting more and more prevalent is thrash. And as thrash is getting older at this point, starting in, in 1983 or 82, they they've gotten to this point in 1990, and it, it's starting to spawn all sorts of different things. So we're going to talk about the thrash bands from in, in, that came out with albums in 1990, and then we're going to talk about the progression from there on. Three, yes, three out of the big four thrash bands release new albums this year, and then a couple of other big titles come out that year. So Slayer, Anthrax, and Megadeth all release albums that year. And for the most part, all three albums for them are well-received and they're very good albums, with Megadeth's Rust in Peace being arguably the best album of their career. Um, I, I, I Oh, yeah, for sure. It's it, I mean, in a lot of people's eyes, this was the pinnacle of, of Megadeth. Right. You know, I, I think 
at that point, it was probably the most technical of all the albums that you know have, that came ever you know up to that point and then ever since, except for Dystopia. I think I think Dystopia is like a really good extension of Rust and Peace for technicality. Yeah, D- Dystopia is just a new era of the band. To be honest, I mean it's it's incorporating a lot of elements from South American metal, etc. That then mm-hmm. it's just become something different, even though it's still Megadeth. Right, but Rust and Peace, and, and and there's a lot of similarities, I guess you could say, between those two albums. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, but Rust and Peace comes out arguably be- the best album in their career. Anthrax puts out Persistence of Time. Uh, I don't know what the hell happened, but they were pissed off because <laughs> that is one dark, <laughs> angry album, you know. And I get it; maybe they were mad at a couple grunge bands. I don't know. I mean, it, it's a dark album. Yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely a moodiness to that album that when you know coming years and years later and and listening through all the albums, there was something about that album that just kind of hit me the wrong way. I guess just as has just such a doomy kind of vibe not doom metal but doom right like just just something gloomy about that exactly very like i said very dark uh slayer they found their middle ground finally between uh, the speed metal of rain and blood and the methodical pace of uh south of heaven they found exactly where they should have been and i and i think this is where slayer was at their best you know they did rain and blood and they, they basically showed that they could do this extreme speed metal album they come back and they slow things down to almost the exact opposite with South of Heaven. And they really found their groove with Season in, season in the Abyss. Yeah, this was somewhere right in the middle. Right, and, exactly. And there was a big lyrical content shift. If you, and if you're really listening to it, he, he, there, he's not talking about demons and hell and that kind of stuff. He's more talking about real things mm-hmm. like murderers, war. You know, stuff like hell on earth, not hell, the, the you know, the fantasy place. Right. I mean, obviously, um, <laughs> but they did go in a little bit dire- different direction after this with, with uh, Divine Intervention, because it's it's more it's more studio produced than than what they were doing before, because they had, you know, they had always been more raw. And I think that's kind of why the the band's not a big fan of that album is because it's just it's so production based. Isn't that the first album with Paul Bostoff on it? Yes, it is. Okay. Um, and th- which is also another change because you know whenever there's a lineup change, even the drummer, that's that it's it's different. The, the oh, songwriting yeah. process is different. The mentality is different. I mean, it, um, we can't take away so anything I, from Dave Lombardo. Dave Lombardo has a groove to his playing that's different than most other people's. He's not as technical as mm-hmm. most drummers. Almost, I mean, he's obviously better than Lars, but there's there's a similarity in that since neither one, are, I would believe, are classically trained type drummers, there's a certain groove element to both of them that are different than most of your standard drummers. Yeah. And, and Dave being such a uh, uh, an extreme, I mean, he's one of the first guys to really go crazy behind a drum set you know as far like you know with like angel uh, angel of death killer song one of their best songs and same thing with rain and blood you know the song it's the the way he plays drums on it is just no one can touch him at that point you know so yeah. so the changing the changing of the drum guard is definitely something that that affects an album and and how it's put together and how it sounds and stuff like that so 
One that, one kind of interesting note about Seasons in the Abyss was there. I always really liked the song Temptation, mm-hmm. and I had no idea about this. Um, so apparently, the the reason there's the overdub of, of the vocals in in Temptation it was a complete accident. Tom Araya had recorded two different versions of one the way that Carrie King thought it should be sung, and then one the way he thought it should be sung. And those were accidentally played at the same time. And they thought, oh, this is so cool. So they (laughs) left it. Oh, wow. Okay. So it was actually actually two completely different vocal versions of the same song that ended up on the the track. Cool. Very good. I I have to give that one another listen. Um, I haven't heard that one in a while. So speaking of Paul Bostaff, his first band, Forbidden, released their... Uh, second album in 1990 again with the same theme they had a change in personnel from their first album to the second album and so this second album twisted into form is a lot more progressive sounding now i gotta say this paul bostaff is probably one of the best thrash drummers in the genre today but listening to that album i would venture to say he's not very good at prog metal (laughs) <laughs> and that's my opinion maybe i'm wrong but it just something about the way he played on that album just did not sound like he was very comfortable with it uh, especially with a lot of the time changes and, and and off beats that were going on in some of the songs but granted that was his you know at the time it was his band that's what they that's what they decided to do and and they moved from that point on uh he ended up leaving a few years later i believe to join uh, Slayer, so it, it's kind of one of those things again, you know, where there's upheaval. Right? That, that that seems to be the the, the key term to 1990 is is change and upheaval. I can see why Forbidden has never really made it super big. Part of the just the vocals, the the lyricist, the singer, main guy, but they're they're they've been steady and consistent. So you you got to give them that much. Do you uh, have you listened to the album recently? I have. Uh, I mean, I'm not a. Not, it's not one that really does anything for me. It's got a couple cool songs on it. I mean, I like any of the instrumental stuff. I'm trying to remember the name of the song that's that's on the album. Uh, was it Infinite? I like that one. I think it's so, kind of yeah. cool. I think it's the first track after the vocal intro. I mean, sorry, the uh, the instrumental instru- intro. I like that one. But it wasn't something that I grew up listening to so it's not it's not really too strong on my radar right so sticking with the thrash thing that we're talking about right now talking about testament they uh this album that they released in 1990 souls of black i call it the third in the trilogy um even though it's their fourth album so they you have the legacy which is their their debut album but then they they put out the new order and with the new order, practice what you preach, and souls of black, I call those a trilogy because there's such a, a such a formula with those three albums. Very similar to how Metallica had a formula with Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, and Injustice for All. So for Testament, you know that was a third of their that formulaic uh, way of doing things. It was pretty consistent, and from there they go and release a ritual, and the ritual is where things start to change and. Uh, Alex Goldnick wants to play more jazz and stuff like that, but so things change after after Souls of Black. But that that Souls of Black is a very good album, but nothing really stands out 
is being, you know, a, a progression. So those three albums, The New Order and Practice What You Preach and Souls of Black, you can almost put them together and they, they all sound very similar. And, they're all, and Practice What You Preach and Souls of Black are produced and sound very similar in general. You could, you could see that there was a, a change or, or better production from The New Order to Practice What You Preach, but Practice and, and Souls of Black sound very similar, almost like part one and part two. So it was um, there was consistency, but at the same time, there, to me, there was no progression, and eventually it would they would fall after the ritual. And then another San Francisco Bay Area act, Death Angel, releases their third album, Act Three, and right after Act Three, they basically break up for several years before they get back together. I think it was 2010, so it was a long time that they were apart until they got back together. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, another thing, like, these bands are either drastically changing or just ending, at least for a while. Exactly, so, but one big band that did come out of, of that era was Pantera. Now, Cowboys from Hell is a great debut album, if it was their debut album. Was it, or was it not their debut? That's for you to Technically, decide. Technically, no. Technically, no. But yeah, this is their. I guess this is their first. It's their first major label. Major label album. There right. we go. And so this is their first major label album. So it's not their debut. It's not their first effort. But you almost can consider everything else because it's self-produced as like a demo. Uh, you know, in in regard to what this is. Right. No. I mean, com- compared to everything beforehand. I mean. There's no comparison. Like you said, they're they're more demo-like. They were you know, made in their backyard, however you want to look at it. I don't know what kind of studio they had. But basically, they weren't signed. They were do- releasing it on their own. I mean, they had a big cult following. I mean, the underground following for them was huge. But when they finally got signed, they, they made a major shift in, in how they, they were going to write their songs. And it paid off big time for them. I mean, Cowboys from Hell is one hell of an album and the song itself is one hell of a song so yeah they were kind of starting that whole groove metal thing they still had some ballads like cemetery gates uh, even though cemetery gates is technically a ballad it's i mean it still has some really interesting guitar work some solo work and and it's i mean they were they were starting something there yeah it's not your typical power ballad that's for sure no not at all no it was uh but you can see that was like that was the last of Phil's, you know, screaming vocals. Yeah, before After, it just became that that uh, you know, harsh screaming vocals. <laughs> yeah, growly harsh. Yeah, it was it was the last of the the 80 style scream. It became, you know, his rough growly voice. So yeah, so Pantera releases Cowboys from Hell and basically the the game changes. I mean, thrash metal for the most part at this point is not really going away and they're not really suffering as bad as say pop metal was because you know pop metal basically suffered from an identity crisis where thrash metal kind of just didn't give a shit so they continue into the 90s not a problem per se but they do have a lot of change again what we've talked about you know testament changes uh, guitar players slayer changes drummers anthrax changes singers and Megadeth had just changed personnel themselves by adding Nick Menza and Marty Friedman. 
it's I guess it's the the running theme of 1990 where there's this, this constant consistent change. So the one thing that we were talking about earlier, how how thrash was continuing to be successful, and it was spawning off all these different genres, if you if you will, and so slowly through throughout the eight, the 80s, more and more bands became more and more extreme and aggressive, which led to the formation of basically death metal and what and extreme metal and what would would become those genres and with the introduction of death metal bands like death obituary entombed deicide all cannibal corpse all those bands basically are are coming to the forefront in in uh, in 1990 i know death is is near and dear to your heart so they released their third album spiritual healing in 1990 I mean, it was it was their last album on Combat Records, so it has that same kind of sound as the first couple albums, even though it's better produced. This was a pretty big turning point in what they were doing. Up until this point, I would say it was a pretty consistent band, even though the first album was different than the second. But that that was that was because he was he was trying to consider it a band, really, and I think he always did. But at the same time, it became more about what Chuck saw as a, a musical project. And there's, there's kind of a reason why that's associated with this album. So there was, there was a pretty big departure from the gore-based lyrics and more into social commentary, which is kind of a same, along the same lines of what Slayer were doing. They went more into reality than this, this kind of like fictional hell. Right, right, and, exactly. And so this was a, a band effort... Whereas what would come later, you had Terry Butler in the band uh, on this album who was credited on Leprosy, but he didn't actually appear on there. Chuck actually played the bass on that album. And then you had Bill Andrews on drums again. And then this was this was James Murphy's first and only uh, album with, with Death. James Murphy would actually be the guy who replaced uh, Alex Skolnick in, in Testament when he left. And oddly enough, James Murphy actually suffered from a brain tumor, which is the same thing with uh, Chuck, which is why he eventually passed away. Um, it's a shame. Two, two very talented guitar players. Yeah, it's very very sad, but James Murphy at least survived and still playing to this day. So the tour that, res- that supported this album was what really was the catalyst for their, their change in the future. Um, they were supposed to tour in Europe, but Chuck felt like you know, the, the last European tour was, was just a shit show. It really didn't work. This was not planned out any better. So he decided to go against touring. And Butler and Andrews decided to go to Europe and go ahead and play as death without Chuck. And it resulted in a lawsuit that ended with the, both of them losing the lawsuit and being kicked out of the band. And from that point on, I think it really affected the, the the direction that the band went lyrically. I mean, Chuck sang more about inner demons, and, and, you know, the, the, the things that go on in your soul rather than just these, you know, gore-based lyrics or, or hell on earth kind of kind of mentality. It was it was much deeper. I think that's kind of the start of where the death became more of a project than, than a band. Well, I can see you know if you if you lose two of your longtime members, if you want to put it that way, 
people that you trust. Yeah, people, especially. I mean, to 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 go out that way. I mean, you're sitting there saying, okay, you as the leader of the band say, look, I don't want to. This is this is a shit show. I don't want to tour this way. I'm not going to do this again. And then two of your bandmates turn around and say, well, you know what? We're going to go ahead and tour anyway, and we're going to just bring a different singer. I mean, that, that, that doesn't make any sense. Did they get another guitar player too? Because I mean. Yeah, they, they, they got another guitar player. Um, basically, they hired a couple roadies that were, you know, well-versed in some of the music of, of the, that genre and continued playing those, their songs. See, that, I mean, that's, just, that's, a, that's a slap in the face to Chuck, obviously, you know, and, and he mm-hmm. he took it that way. I mean, it just doesn't make sense because Chuck is the guitar player. Chuck is the, the one he can play, you know. He wrote all the songs. He wrote I mean, the songs. It, he sang the lyrics. He and he played the guitar, and then you, they're just going to put somebody who plays guitar up there. It's not the same one. It's not the same no. style. It's not the same effect. You know, singing wise, you can come close to, but you're not going to get the same exact uh, intonation. You're not going to get the same melody. You know, whatever melody there was behind the, the lyrics in the words. So it's it's ridiculous that they would do that and and, yeah. and open themselves up for such a a, well, a lawsuit that would can't that would come. Yeah, and. What's interesting is is death had spawned a lot of bands that were kind of, you know how, how Black Sabbath and a lot of the surrounding bands have this interweaving group of members. Yes. The same thing happened out of the Florida scene, where the, one of the the other albums we're going to talk about, uh, Obituary, also had James Murphy on it playing guitar, and in a very similar sound to to Death. So they released Cause of Death, which was another big album from that. That genre from that time period, it's revered as a pretty, pretty, you know, strong album in that category. They even covered one of the Celtic Frost uh, songs, Circle of Tyrants. Right. So the, you've got these these guys that are kind of interweaving. There was an, another band that released an album the next year, which was Bill Andrews and, and Terry Butler on Massacre. Mm, Massacre. Okay. Massacre was another band that was an offshoot and ended up being produced by the same um, or, or represented by the same lawyer as Death, which was kind of interesting to me. I, I, li- I would like to know more about what their relationship was after all that stuff went down, considering that Eric Grief was still involved. I mean, he's he's one of Chuck's best friends still, uh, you know, fl- flies the flag for Death to this day. But they still had a relationship with these guys that were kicked out of the band. So I'm, I'd be interested to mo- know a little bit more about that. But you can see that this the genre is kind of picking up where, you know, the, the originators left off. You got Cannibal Corpse with Eaten Back to Life. Yeah, that that being their debut album. I mean, it's it's a huge release. It just gore, gore, gore. I mean, look at the album cover alone. A zombie with guts coming out i'm pretty sure he's eating some of his own guts i mean <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, that, that they they took it cannibal corpse took it one step farther now oh absolutely musically they sounded you know just like dsi they sounded just like obituary uh and even I, early sepultura um but the, lyrically they they were just one step farther into the extreme and, and i would say just like is not exactly a an apt assessment i would say more like more straightforward and more attack just just you're you're there listening to it and it's not really like any guitar solos or anything it's just like 
it's just hitting you in the face. Just, I mean, hammer smash face would be the perfect, <laughs> <laughs> perfect assessment of the way their music comes across. Right. Cannibal Corpse is definitely extreme, and it's not something that I listen to. Yeah, um, it's not. It, to be honest, this this album, Eaten Back to Life, is not a great album. I would say it's kind of middle of the road, but it's so it's so. Um, impactful because it's new and different and and as gore focused as some of these other albums were this was more so this was the extreme right they they took death's first album and they just they just pushed it to 11 i mean way, oh, yeah yeah you know it, as far as as far as the content as yeah, far as content exactly you know you mentioned before obituaries cause of death was very similar sounding to death the first, the first couple albums. The one thing we have to mention, you know, Death, Obituary, Cannibal Corpse, and Deicide, they all came out of that Tampa, Florida death metal scene, you can sit there and say. They're all American death metal bands. Yeah. They all have the Morris Sound sound, which was the, the Morris Sound recording studios that were, that were uh, where all these albums were recorded. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so they have they have that connection to each other, and they actually all played. You know, some of the guys played on each other's albums. You know, did backup vocals or whatever it was. Um, Deicide also released their debut album that year. So it, it, it's a, that that whole death metal scene is just blowing up in in all different directions, and, it, and it's it's coming to the forefront. And it's so extreme; it's really hard to. When you're a thrash fan, you know, and you you've you've gotten accustomed to certain things about it, and all of a sudden this thing comes out, you know, there's some there's aspects of it that are real appealing, but sometimes the the not the lyrical content, but the the vocal content is 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 hard to get behind, you know, and that that was where my problem was. This is why I never got into much of this. Now, you and I being friends, I've listened more to Death than I ever have. And I can tell that there's a difference between death and all these other death metal bands. Yeah. You know, death wasn't really, I mean, as much as they started the genre, they didn't really stay there. They just kind of like, oh, yeah, we started it and then they moved on type of thing almost, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bands that end up doing that. They, they're the ones that kind of create that, that sound and other bands will latch on to that sound and continue that genre. Whereas a lot of times the originators will, you know, continue progressing and grow into something different. Well, I don't feel like death really went outside of of the genre so much that they were something completely different like they never went into pop metal or anything like that right but, no but they, they became much more experimental much more like bringing them jazz elements you know just continuing to grow from from where they started right so they would almost they kind of almost evolved into like a progressive death metal band you know, well, yeah, technical a, for sure. A lot of technical yeah. stuff. You know, bringing with with the with the guys from um, Cynic, um, they 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 mm-hmm. the, the the technicality went another step further, and they were very progressive. You know, again, but still keeping the elements that 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 they started with. Yeah. So, but you know, when you talk about bands like Obituary and Cannibal Corpse and Deicide, I mean, they took it to another extreme. You know, Deicide going down the the, the path of of Satan. Cannibal Corpse, just I can't. You can't even call it Satan. I mean, it was just straight out like a horror movie kind of. You know, yeah. the Texas Chainsaw Massacre all wrapped up into you know Friday Thirteenth and and 
uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, along with you know Saw, even though Saw wasn't out at the time. You know, it's it's one of those. It's just that's what it what it became or what it was, and, and it, they're still that way today. You know, so they're they're their own <laughs> they're their own path. That's for sure. Yeah, and you had like bands like Napalm Death, which had Harmony Corruption, where they started a, including more death metal. Uh, aspects into the album rather than being grindcore where they started where grindcore was kind of like uh like almost punky punky in the short songs and yeah and deathy in the in the the musicality of it yeah but the, where where the, where this album started adding more of some of the uh, melodic elements of of death metal and that, so, and that had a lot to do with the fact that mike barney greenway joined the band Mm-hmm. And basically took over because it eventually became his band. So, yeah, you had the first two albums with a, a different singer, Lee Dorian, and even before that, when they first started with with Scum, they had, I mean, they had a completely different sound where they had like I think it was like a one second song, and you know, yeah, it's I, a, I, that's the kind of stuff that I I can't get into. I mean, like like you almost like we were talking about SOD and I, and I was saying that that's something that people should be listening to. And we talked about the fact that they have three second songs, 10 second songs, 15 second songs. They were thrash. Mm-hmm. Um, so grindcore, you know, being just hardcore punk, but it's so hardcore that it's just like, you know, blast beats. So it's, it's a combination between the hardcore punk, the thrash and, and the death metal all into one. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing, you know, to each his own. I mean, the people who like it, by all means, you know, if that's what you like, that's what you like. It's not my cup of tea, <laughs> but there are there are elements that are that are still cool about it. You know, it definitely pushed its way into another scene. You know, and and it has its place in metal. Yeah, and and one we should have talked about probably first when when talking about the transition between you know extreme metal and thrash was was uh, creator. Creator, I mean, Creator has a lot of extreme metal elements to them where they are a thrash band. They have a lot of melodic aspects, but they, the vocals are also very growly. So they're they're often considered in with, with a lot of extreme metal. They released Coma of Souls, which is one of their biggest albums, if not their biggest album up to this point. And it's, I mean, it's just a heavy hitter from beginning to end. Coma of Souls, the song itself is just a fantastic song. When the sun burns red, terror zone, all these have become staples of their their set list. And then, you know, again, going back to what we were talking about with several other bands before at this point, they they released an album in in 1992. It's industrial metal. They're changing their sound just like a lot of these these bands are doing because something's happening in 1990 that's just changing everything in the world of music. And yeah. uh, it's it's for the for the long term fan. It was just such a departure that it was hard to listen to because it just wasn't the band that you you listened you know you had been listening to for all these years. Right, and and that's in growing up reading the magazines and and going to the store and dropping my three dollars and fifty cents for for Hit Parader or Circus magazine. As time went on, I I saw the ads for Coma of Souls. And I just never was able to get into Creator. I knew they were a German thrash band, and I just never went to the store and bought it. I don't know why. They had cool covers. It's just something that I never got into. 
but I have yeah. heard the album recently. I, you know, I can understand why they were influential, you know, in, in, especially in the European version, because yes, the vocals lend itself to what is basically now, you know, melodic death metal, uh, in, in many ways, like very, like children of bottom, you know, there's a lot of similarities in vocals yeah. to me, but, um, obviously playing wise, I mean, you know, children of bottom are way, way, way better <laughs> and more skilled. But that's not to take away from creator. Creators from a different time period. Um, I mean, that's 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 a difference of opinion there. I don't, I don't think they're necessarily more skilled, um, especially if you listen to some of these newer albums that they've been releasing in the last few years. Especially since they 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 came back from their kind of experimental phase. Um, they released uh, and uh, uh, what was the name of the album? There was Violent Revolution, which is probably my favorite creator album. I mean, it's just such a, such a heavy album has a lot of, um, great lyrical content. And, uh, I just, I, I think, I think going through that experimental phase was, was part of their growth and actually helped them, you know, grow into a better band. Mm-hmm. Um, because they they introduced a lot of those Gothenburg kind of elements where they had melodic guitar riffs as well. And everything from that point on, they've had Enemy of God, Hordes of Chaos, Phantom Antichrist, which is another one of my favorites. Those are all amazing albums, and I really consider that era of the band one of their best, now, if not their best era of their, their, their songwriting. And this is, this is the current era? This is the current era. Of now, is, is the band the same? No, they've they've had some changes. Okay, so they had so so you got I would say the same vocalist. Same vocalist has been all through the entire history of the band. Um, I want to say their their current guitarist has been around ever since two thousand two. So he's been around through all this era of the band that I'm talking about. What about the drummer? And drummer same. The only one that's changed is just recently, which is the bassist. He changed this year. So, but it's the same drummer throughout the entire career. No, well, yeah, pretty much all except for one album. Oh, okay, which which was 1995, uh, that was Cause for Conflict, but the rest of the the entire history from 2002 on, they've been the same band okay. up until, like so, I said, this year. I stand corrected. I mean, when I was talking about the musicality, because what what I what I was trying to say about that was, you know, there's as as time went on with many of these bands you know as you can tell the 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 skills of, of the drummers that are, that are out there today are so far ahead of where mm-hmm. people were in the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s oh, yeah. you know that a, a, the first few creator albums don't have the same sound that that they have now and 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 when I say that, it's just that some some musicians grow and they and they they grow with the style that they're in, you know. Where some musicians just they stay in their they stay in their zone, yeah. Know? And they and they don't you know they they're this and that's what they're going to be, you know. And some musicians are able to get faster or more melodic or or more groovy or whatever it is because they they say hey you know what the genre that I'm in is changing either I change or I become a dinosaur, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yep. so kudos to creator for that because, you know, it, it, it means a lot to those guys to do something like that because that they, they're, they're trying to keep relevant, which was the conversation we had last week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Absolutely. Or two weeks ago. So 
Along one of those, those weeks. Say what? One of those weeks. Oh, I know. It's just it's a blur. <laughs> so along those same lines, um, talking about change and, and band change styles, uh, Bathory released Hammerheart uh, in 1990. It was their fourth record, if I'm not mistaken. And that was a departure from the first three, as the first three were more black metal, and this tend lend itself to be Viking extreme, kind of almost to some degree the the the, the, the forebearer of of melodic death metal. Um, what what do you have to say about that? Because I know you mentioned to me that you had something interesting to talk about with, when it came to Bathory. Well. A forebearer of melodic death metal, I, I don't really feel like is necessarily true. I think I think it's it's definitely along the lines of the you know the the other bands that came afterwards. Amana Marth um, is a big one in the Viking metal, even though they don't consider themselves a Viking metal uh, band. They 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 definitely fit into that category. Um, th- there was other guys that were that basically they were hearkening back to the old mentality, the old gods, the and kind of, not necessarily anti-Christian, but just the Christianity was kind of being forced into that region, and these were all guys that 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 kind of were going back to that old mentality of what what was there before, and the uh, obviously the the uh, um, Bathory was the first band that really did that and and the the sound was starting to change from what was considered the traditional uh black metal which had started with you know the the everyone that came after uh what's what's their name mayhem mayhem had kind of started this mentality and rather than going the anti-christian route this more became just celebrating you know odin and and the 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 norse gods and and so there was there was kind of a shift in the the genre and the 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 recording it became okay to start recording a little bit better quality than than you know recording in somebody's garage or recording in a live venue even though this album still had that old black metal kind of sound it was beginning to change yeah it was it was a little bit better sounding than their first couple records mhm for sure and, and he was also more... As far as recording goes. Right. And he was a little more understandable. I mean, it was funny because I listened to the first album and, and you can clearly hear the lyrics and, and the words he's saying. And it got a little bit rougher. And then when this album came out, it kind of went back to being able to be more understood. Well, the the, the guy that was behind it, Corthon, um, he, he was... You know, more experimental than a lot of these guys. He was he was a musician, a multi instrumentalist, like a lot of these guys that that have their own band project. The, one of the most infamous being Burzum with Varg Vikernes. Um, <laughs> he was a, I say infamous. Oh you know, no, I I know why. I just I, you know he a, he turns me off. Let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. Multi instrumentalist that that uh is generating all their music on their own corthon was definitely capable of that but more musical than a guy like varg vikernes so yeah viking metal comes on the scenes you're gonna see a huge change in departure of their sound as well as many bands that are gonna copy them and then uh you know you're you kind of got to bring it back to the 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 traditional bands 
you know, the guys that we all grew up with and knew, like right. ACDC. Yeah, and, and ACDC, all right, so ACDC releases uh, The Razor's Edge in 1990. Now, to me, in my opinion, this is a make-or-break album for ACDC, and I don't know if they thought about it in that regards when they released it, but in my eyes it was because, you know, coming off of Maximum Overdrive, where they had a they had a hit with Who Made Who, so they realized at that point that they could do it, but that's all they had on there. You know, the rest of it was a compilation. And the the album before that, which was Blow Up Your Video, I mean, that was... They had two singles off of it. They were good songs, but the rest of the album just was terrible. The tour wasn't the the, the greatest tour in the world for them. It wasn't the most successful. They, they ended up um, changing drummers. You know, uh, Simon Wright's out of the band after the tour. So there's a lot of change with AC, within ACDC and, and, and that's a band that they prefer not to change they've they've had to change because of of person you know obviously Bon Scott passing away and so they and then they you know Phil Rudd having his issues but they prefer not to change um in this re, in 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 personal you know in in their eyes they'd rather not change and so now they've got change coming on them but they have to make a point. They have to do something. I think they, they achieved that with uh, The Razor's Edge. I mean, they come out with Thunderstruck. They come out with um, Money Talks. Are you ready? They, they have a good album. And it, it definitely solidifies them again. It reestablishes themselves as a good hard rock metal act. I mean, Thunderstruck is, is huge. I mean, how many times have you heard Thunderstruck at sporting events or, you know, in movies? Money Talks was a big hit single for him at the time. And yeah. essentially, this album uh, led their, led the way for them to be able to do the Monsters of Rock tour that ended up becoming six, that they joined, that Metallica was opening up for them out in Europe. You know, they, they do this European tour, the Monsters of Rock tour, that has Metallica and Pantera playing with them. I mean, when you, you think about it, that's a pretty big show, you know? I think... I think one thing that that happens with these bands that they've had such a longevity is that when they put out a song like Thunderstruck that deep into their career, I mean, ACDC had been around since what, 1973, something like that. At this point, they're, they're, they're a, a, an established act for 15 years, 16 years. So they've been around for, for almost two decades Mm -hmm. and they put out a song as big as Thunderstruck that puts them into the zeitgeist. That puts them into, you know, they're they're so reliable at that point to continue putting out at least a big hit that everybody just kind of goes, oh, ACDC, you know? Right. When when you're when you're that far into your career and you're putting out junkers and you're not putting out big hits, you're no longer relevant. But as long as you're putting out that that one song that's keeping you on, on radio play keeping you, you know, relevant, then you're reaching a point where you're in you're in the social zeitgeist. Exactly. And 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 they they definitely achieved that. And they and that that's what they've done, they or they did throughout the nineties, two thousands and twenty tens. You know, release an album every so often. Make sure that it's got one good song that, that people could grab hold of and continue to tour on that. And yeah, because so, ten, 10 years later, they're releasing Stiff Upper Lip, and it sounds like an old ACDC song that you've heard forever. Right. 
exactly. Razor's Edge was just the beginning because, you know, three, uh, five years later, they released Ball Breaker. And mm-hmm. Phil Rudd joins the band again, and they get that old kind of blues bass sound that, that they had in the mid-70s mm-hmm. with, with the more modern sound. And so, it, so there's a combination with that album. Of yeah, and that's, the blues that's, with with kind of the the eighties ACDC, you know, with Ball Breaker and and, and Hail Caesar. So that album takes every, all the elements of ACDC, and so it was a successful album for them. Yeah. So this was, you know, the Razor's Edge was just the beginning, you know, the step that they needed to take because they were they were on a on the downward spiral, and luckily for them, this album, you know, hit a big form again and brought them back into relevance. Yeah, Fly on the Wall and Flick of the Switch were not uh, the most well-received albums and, and not the best tours. You know, to and I, them. I like Flick of the Switch. And, uh, you know, I listen, I mean, Fly on the Wall, I think what happened with Fly on the Wall was the production was so different from everything that they had done uh, from Back in Black, you know, from Highway to Hell, Back in Black, for those about to rock, and Flick of the Switch, they all had a very similar sound. Mm-hmm. But then Fly on the Wall, the, the, the drum sound on it was almost uh, a leftover from the creatures of the night uh production <laughs> you know well yeah it's it, i mean it's uh it's simon wright instead of phil rudd right and so it's a big difference because phil rudd was on flick of the switch even though he he was not on the tour he left yeah he mm-hmm. was not on the video either so 1990 acdc you know reestablishes themselves the the, the decade is beginning and obviously we we're you know the pop metal acts are suffering from grunge at this point, or or beginning to suffer from grunge at this point. Um, it sounds like they've developed some type of disease. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> essentially, Nirvana put them all on notice, and it, it's it's uh, it's interesting because there there was such a dramatic shift in 1990. But one of the acts that would kind of I guess uh, balance themselves on the wire between both sides of metal and grunge. Kind of bridge uh, the gap. Yes, they they uh, they played both both sides of the fence, and that was Alice in Chains, and they released their debut album, Facelift, in 1990, and that was that was pretty huge for both scenes for for the grunge scene and for the metal scene, because it it showed that you can still be considered a grunge act. And you can still be metal because mm-hmm. they definitely were that. Although future releases, it, they they literally played both sides of the fence because they released the EP, which was all acoustic with sap, and then they come out with Dirt in 1992, which just was a you know a fully established established themselves as a metal act. But yeah, uh, alternative metal. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. for what it were, for what it is, they're still metal. And then they would go and release Jar of Flies, which goes goes back to the acoustic thing. So they they're a very eclectic band. I mean, when they wanted to be metal, they could be metal. And so, well, go on. I think what separated them from a lot of the other bands that were that we were talking about was the vocal style. You had Lane Staley with a very unique voice. You had hit songs, I mean, heavy songs like We Die Young, but then you had hit songs that were kind of crossover more into the grunge, like Man in the Box. Mm-hmm. So you had, you had uh, also, like I always keep harping on, is the lyrical content was very different. It was more uh, poetic. 
than a lot of the other stuff. Oh yeah, I mean yeah. Jerry Cantrell and Lane Staley's lyrics are are uh, just incredible, and it it goes to show you because they were able to go back and forth between the acoustic and the electric and the metal and the and the soft stuff, how talented Allison Chains really is. I mean they're still around today in a different form. Um, you know, Mike Starr and, and Lane Staley both have passed away, and Mike Inez is playing bass for them now, and um, what's his name? Uh, is it William Duvall? <laughs> oh, the singer. The yeah, singer, there yeah. You, go. you have to specify what, yeah. what you're talking about. Oh, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, yeah, William Duvall. Yeah, I mean, he he doesn't, he's not exactly Lane, but he pays tribute, so... You know, and yeah, he, and he's he's got a great voice. Yeah, and he you meshes know? very well with Jerry, so that that's the the big point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think one one thing that's important to note about the and and this is off subject, but um, one thing that's very important to note about when Allison Chains came back, Jerry Cantrell was a big part of what made Allison Chains Allison Chains. Of course, yeah. And so you have a band that's coming back together, not just for. The reasons of you know like hey we were successful before but a cathartic thing you know like they'd lost family members they had lost you know what what where they started but they they still had it in them to continue and to to bring in william duvall as as a vocalist i mean it's jerry cantrell's also doing vocals so you're bringing this guy in that's not just trying to replace lane staley that's that was not the point it was somebody that, like you said, could p- pay tribute, and also was good enough that can that could bring something new to the table. Exactly, absolutely. So, with that said, you know, Allison Chains, like we mentioned earlier, was the the bridge between metal and grunge going into the '90s, and other bands like uh, Soundgarden. Uh, as as heavy as and doomy as they tried to be, and Black Sabbathy as they tried to be, you know. They uh, they went a little lighter in future years, so it, there was a big upheaval in 1990 when it came to all these bands. It was almost like, you know, either change change with the times or you're going to be left behind. And some of them were left behind. Some of them yep. didn't change. Like like I said, the thrash and the extreme bands they didn't change. Um, some of them did. I mean, Metallica obviously changed, and they wanted to become more grungy. I mean, they they were very good friends with Alice in Chains, so they kind of adopted that whole straightforward rock, hard rock approach. I mean, te- Testament went through a change too. I mean, they went through the their low period. I but, mean, low being the album, not right? Low but they were still low. trying to be a thrash band. They weren't yeah. trying to be a grunge band. You know. No, but there was there was definitely a, a, a stylistic change. There. Well, Slayer did too because they tried to be a new metal act mm-hmm. briefly. Slayer you know. changed. Uh, Anthrax, Anthrax obviously changed because they had a different singer, um, which we, he was a songwriter too, so brought in a new perspective on on you know the sound of the band. So there was some change, but uh, overall, most of those guys stayed pretty true to themselves i mean megadeth changed i mean they all changed and and they all came back i I guess you put it that way but the 90s you know as they were still relatively kind to thrash bands but Mm -hmm. there was there was definitely some some uh rather than to say change there was some assimilation between the two genres (laughs) yeah 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 you know that's, that's fair and so that brings us to this week's big four uh, there's a there's a 
something about that. You know, we're talking about change with with this week's big four being big four fantasy lineups. There's uh, something about that that makes you sit there and say, you know, I wish I could see this guy with this guy, or I wish I could have seen this person with that person, or this guitar player with that guy. Well, the, the way I presented the rules to to uh, to Kenneth was that basically we could we could pick anybody that was still alive you know somebody that that they they still have the opportunity to play together and who we would like to see whether it's a full lineup whether it's just one member one more time something like that just you know these guys they like a lot of times it's ego it's it's just maybe that they're at a different point in their life and they just not, don't want to play together but you know what this is our fantasy picks so we're going to pick somebody or, or these lineups that we want to see together again. Exactly. So I have a, a, an interesting list, and I have not heard your list. So uh, do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Why don't you go ahead, because I'm kind of you saying I'm going to be surprised by this. So okay, I'm, so I'm going to hear your, your pick. All right, so my number four fantasy lineup. Now, this is one that's been touted. Um, uh, it's been floating around for a few years, and, and, and there's a reason why. So, Pantera obviously has lost the the two main people that are in the band, you know, and it's uh, Vinnie Paul and Dimebag. But a lot of people have been floating around. Phil is still alive, so is Rex. Why don't you put together a band that can pay honor and tribute to Pantera? And the one person that's been floating this around the most has been Zach Wild. So. In my eyes, I, I hope this qualifies, but I would like to see, you know, Phil and Rex play with Zach and Mike Portnoy uh, as a, a tribute to Pantera, not Pantera, but a tribute to Pantera. Does that qualify? I think, I think you're, I think you're riding the border <laughs> because because the the whole idea was a band that still exists that we're going to to you know bring back a member. This this is, I'm going to count it. <laughs> but you're you're riding the line right there okay now that's my number four so i would like to see pantera with with zach and mike now number three i would like to see the original wasp lineup all four Ooh, members are still alive that's a good one that's a good one i would like to see that I would, I would like to almost throw myself back into 1985 and see that band that was throwing meat into the audience <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. So that that's that's when I and that that's when I got into that the whole '80s metal scene, and and so that would be totally something that I would love to see again. Number two, and I believe all these players are still alive, but I would like to see the Joe Lynn turn. Excuse me, I would like to see the Joe Lynn Turner era of Rainbow. Okay. Much like okay. Joe would like to see the the Jolene Turner era of Rainbow, I I would like to see it again because, not for the same reasons that he wants it, but it's just to, just to be able to experience that again. You know, you, Richie Blackmore on guitar, Roger Glover on bass, um, Jolene Turner on vocals, Bobby Rondinelli on drums. I don't want Chuck Bergy. I don't like Chuck Bergy. <laughs> I don't know why I didn't like Chuck Berge. I, I think Chuck Berge was more of like a single drum, a single bass drum player, and he, he was he was a little bit more steady than, than Bobby. I like Bobby because Bobby was like a double a double bass uh, drum player, so I liked him. And Dave Rosenthal on on keyboards. So okay, I would I like, like to see that lineup. 
Now, my number one. Now, this is a, this is a, a, a true fantasy. This almost came to fruition. It never, ever... Actually, I'm, let, me, let me correct myself. It took place once. And it took place uh, in 19... Or 2013? Or 2000, 2013? I think it was. 2013. <laughs> I would like to see John Bush as the lead singer for Metallica. Okay. And that is because Metallica wanted John Bush to be the lead singer of Metallica. What an amazing thing that, that could have been. But would Metallica have been Metallica? So who knows? It all worked out for the best for everybody. Well, some better for others. But Metallica asked John Bush to be their vocalist. He turned him down. And when they did the 30th anniversary shows, he came and played a few songs with them. And that was cool. That yeah, is, for sure. You know, seeing that 30 years later, you say to yourself, what could have been? That's my big four fantasy lineups. I like it. Cool. Was it was it surprising that last one? The the very last one? Yeah, John Bush and Metallica. You know what? No. No, really? <laughs> because because I knew he did it and I considered that actually oh, as, really? as, okay. as one of mine. Um and I did I didn't pick him for either, but John Bush, Anthrax, or Metallica. Um would love to hear both of those, but they're not on my big four. Okay. All right, so sorry to disappoint you, but I wasn't surprised. <laughs> well, you were surprised knew, by Wasp, knew, though. I knew Metallica was going to have to be in there somewhere. Actually, I was surprised by your Rainbow pick as well. Oh, okay, cool. So I like both of those a lot. Um, so let me start off, obviously, with my number four, um, Van Halen with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony. I was going to pick that one, but I thought it was too obvious. It, it may be too obvious, but I love that version of the band. I mean, like I've said before, uh 5150 was my first album from van halen so there all those guys are living sammy hagar still sounds sounds fantastic i would love to hear them together at least we get to hear sammy and and michael together see and another in, reason in why future. another reason why i didn't pick them is because i actually seen them <laughs> gotcha <laughs> all right uh, you know i would love to hear numbers for number three i'd love to hear marty freeman with megadeth again I mean, not not necessarily as a permanent thing, but I I mean he's still alive, the 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 band's still around. Why not hear them together again sometime? You know, do do one of those anniversary tours like like Metallica, bring back all these old members of the band. But specifically, I, I mean, I think everybody wants to hear Marty Friedman play with them just one more time. But it would take it would take like ten weeks to get through every member of Megadeth. <laughs> <laughs> it would be awesome. <laughs> There's been so many in and out of that band. Oh, yeah, for sure. All right, number two. I want to hear Bill Ward back with Black Sabbath when they do the 2022 Commonwealth Games. I want. I don't want any more excuses. It's a one-off show. When they do that, that I want to see all four original members. That'd be nice. I, I don't see any reason. If they, if they can all get up there and play, I mean... They're, they're older guys, but if they're, if the three main guys are going to do it, the ones that have been in the last few incarnations of the band, I, I want to see Bill Ward with them. He's the drummer for Black Sabbath. When everything went down and he you know he turned it down, they alluded to more than just the, the financial aspect. The, the three guys alluded to more like he wasn't able to keep up. So there's a big question about that. I mean, I would like to see that too. But this isn't going to be some long tour. This is one show and probably only a couple songs. 
So yeah, so true. Yeah, if, if, the, if it's a small, yeah, if it's a four or five song set, I can see it, I, and I don't see why they couldn't do it. Yeah, they don't got to pick their most difficult songs. They've got quite a a, a library to go through. You Maybe know, they won't play the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, then you're out. I like that one. All right. Um, okay, so number one, Scorpions playing together with the original Love Drive lineup, including Michael Shanker. Wow. So you want Francis and Herman? Yes. Especially Herman. Herman the German. Come on. Herman the German. They're all still alive. I don't know exactly what their all their their medical conditions are. You know, they're they're older gentlemen. Some of them in their 70s, but Damn. But old. Scorpions is still playing with a lot of those guys. So, one-off show, I would love to see that lineup again. The Shanker Brothers Give us a fantastic farewell show. I I would like to see the Shanker brothers back together again, but the way Michael Shanker has been talking about Rudy lately, I don't see that happening. <laughs> again, this is fantasy. I know it's fantasy. <laughs> well, cool. That's our big four for this week, and that's our show. So, uh, Chris, why don't you uh, let them know where they can find us? You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podbean, or wherever you consume your metal podcasts. If you enjoyed our show and agreed with our opinions or just want to rip us a new one, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can email us at debatingmetal at gmail.com. On behalf of Kenneth Dean, I'm Chris Kay. We'll see you next week. Bye.